Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Equipping You Grace podcast, everyone. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have my new friend, Bodie Bacham. Bodie, welcome back, to, or welcome to the Equipping You Grace podcast, sir. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. It's good to be yeah, with you. Maybe next time I'll be welcome, welcome back. Uh, yes, definitely. Anytime you're welcome on this podcast, sir, for sure. Well, can you uh, just uh, let us know about your life, marriage, ministry, and what are you working on ministry project-wise? And if you want to throw in a little bit of a health update on how you were doing, I know you... I know you've had some health challenges. We'd yeah. love to hear about that too. So. Yeah, no, I'm I'm doing great, man. I, um, you know, I'm a two and a half months out now from open heart surgery, and I'm I'm feeling strong. My recovery is going extremely well. Um, I am married to Bridget um, for 32 years. We have um, nine children. We lived most of our lives in in Houston, but left there um, almost six years ago. Six years ago, August. Um, to move to Lusaka, Zambia, where we now live. I went there to help start the African Christian University, which is where I serve as the dean of the School of Divinity. And um, I'm, you know, in the U.S. three or four times a year for different uh, speaking tours. Um, also, you know, write books and, you know, do a whole bunch of other stuff as well. But yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of me. I know. I understand that you're going back to Africa this week, right? So how come we can be praying for you? Yeah. Just pray for the journey on Saturday. Yeah. Um, also pray for us as a family. You know, we've been here for a while. Um, I've been here for about six months now because of all of these, these issues and uh, Bridget and the children, you know, are here and she went back and brought them to, to, to join us. Um, so really just pray for our journey back and, and uh, for us to be able to get, back into our lives. Yeah, for sure. We'll definitely be praying. Thank you for sharing. Well, brother, what, what has most surprised you about the response to this book, Fault Lines? Um, if I'm honest, the number of people who bought it, um, yeah, that, I've just been blown away by um, just the, the, the response in terms of people going and getting this book, um, especially since there are a lot of people out there who've said that they will absolutely not read it no matter what. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> But I'm, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I think the topic, you know, the the season that we're living in. But two, I don't think another Christian publisher um, has published a book from this perspective. Mm. Um, there are a lot of books out there from the critical social justice perspective or from a perspective that is friendly toward the, the critical social justice movement. But um, you, you, you can't find books out there unless they're self-published um, that are critical of this uh, perspective. So I think that has a lot to do with it as well. Yeah, that's really good. Um, is social justice a gospel issue? Why or why not, brother? Yeah, of course it is a gospel issue. Um, and I answer that for a different reason. Many people answer that. I answer it because um, social justice is redistributive justice. Um, social justice means and has meant for a long time that you redistribute um, wealth and resources within a culture 
in order to achieve equity between groups um, in terms of those resources. Now, people will say, well, that's not what I mean. Um, and I say, use a different word because that's what that word means. And so I think it's absolutely a gospel issue in the sense that we move from gospel to law when we start working from that definition. And we also move from the church to the state when we start working from that definition. Yeah, that's really good. Really good. Well, do you think that the roots of social justice are in the social gospel of progressive Christianity? No, not necessarily. Um, I think its its roots are actually in Roman Catholicism. Um mm. As 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 far as it goes, I think the first time that you know that 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 term was used was in the context of uh, of Roman Catholicism. So, and I think it was earlier than the social gospel uh, movement. So I wouldn't say that its roots are there. Oh, okay, that's that's fair. Just wondered. Uh, do you think that what we're seeing with social justice is another symptom of the problem of biblical literacy in the church today? Yeah, and um, I, I think most of the issues that we see like this. Um, are a byproduct of, of biblical illiteracy. Um, if we don't know what the Bible says, and I would, I would also add theological illiteracy. Mm-hmm. If we don't know what the Bible says, um, that's a problem. And we'll be susceptible to things that sound good, right? Social justice, right? That sounds good. Racial justice, that sounds good. Um, and so we're susceptible to things that sound good because we want to be about justice. We want to be about, you know, reconciliation and, and things like that. Um, but if we're biblically illiterate, we don't we don't understand that. Also, we're theologically illiterate, which means that we haven't thought through these things from a theological perspective. We don't have um, a sound, full orbed theological understanding and explanation of these things um, that makes us susceptible to ideas that creep in. Yeah, yeah. We we don't have any. If we don't have a, a good understanding of biblical liter- literacy and, and the difference between biblical literacy and, you know, and theological literacy and, and mm-hmm. the opposite of that, then we're not going to be able to use discernment. And then, right. you know, we're susceptible, as you're saying, to every everything. So that's that's really good. Every wind of doctrine. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Amen. Well, do you think there's a purposeful indoctrination happening in media, culture, schools, and even churches with CRT? What does this mean for believers in the church today? Um, is there purposeful indoctrination? In, in some ways, yes. Um, this ideology you mentioned specifically, CRT, critical race theory, it's been around um, for a long time. It comes out of critical legal studies and it has a long history um, in the academy. Um, that being said, um, most of the people who are talking about it and pushing it now um, don't believe that they're pushing CRT because they don't really understand what CRT is. So, for example, people would push um, Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility or uh, Ibram Kendi's, you know, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And they wouldn't think that they were promoting CRT because they think CRT is is something else, something other than that. They don't understand that, you know, those two books, for example, are the 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 seminal examples of the popularized version of critical race theory. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, you know, this question comes from one of our listeners, and you know, forgive the clunkiness of it because it was a comment, not a question. 
So um, I tried to frame it as a question. So um, I so I posted on social media. I was interviewing you, and I've already had Owen coming on with his new book, and I have Jeffrey Johnson coming on here soon. And and it, this person wanted to know your thoughts on fairly assessing what others actually believe, and about grace, love, and humility, and not conflating every concern with racism uh, with CRT. Yeah, um, nobody's done that. Uh, nobody that I know has done that. That's a charge. That's a red herring, right? Um, you know, and it doesn't matter how many times we say there is racism. Racism is a problem. It's a sin. Doesn't matter how many times we say there are issues, right, that are out there. We are constantly accused of saying that everybody who has a concern with race is doing CRT. Well, I have a concern with race, right? I've preached messages on 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 racial reconciliation from Ephesians chapter two, right? So how can it be true, number one, that I have preached messages that are concerned with this issue? And then number two, at the same time, I think everybody who has a concern about this issue is is a Marxist. So, I mean, that's purely a red herring. Hmm, interesting. How can Christians pursue justice in this world without bending to wokeness or, or even to other troubling views? Um, by, by understanding what justice is, right? I mean... Yeah. Justice is righteous action by God and righteous action by God's people. And righteous action is that which accords with the law of God. Um, So one of the problems that we have is that people have abandoned the law of God, right? Mm, We don't even know the Decalogue, okay? Mm, So God, you know, gives us this picture of his justice and his righteous standard in the Decalogue. We decide that, you know, we're we're beyond that. And so we have no right understanding of the law. Then we want to pursue justice, which requires that. I mean, justice that's law. Right. But since we gave up on the law, we don't have anything to use. Right. We don't know what the tools are in order to pursue these ethics that we're after. This is why we fall prey to different ideas. Theologies. And so I, I think my first answer to that is um, learn how to use the law rightly, because that's the picture of justice. That's really, really good. Really good. What would you say to the person getting exposed to critical race theory and intersectionality uh, for the first time, maybe even listening to this podcast? Yeah, um, I would say welcome to the party. Um, You know, whoever you are, unless you've been living under a rock, this is not actually your first time being exposed to this. Um, You've been exposed to this a lot. Um, And so one of the things that I, I, you know, try to do in my book is give people the tools to understand and discern what these things are. Um, And for a lot of people, what I've heard is, you know, when I read your book, I realized that I had been exposed to this, that I had been hearing this. Unfortunately, some people have said, you know, I realize that I've been hearing this from the pulpit. Um, but yeah, we, we welcome to the party. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. You know, what concerns do you have about the growing racial reconciliation, racial reconciliation movement in the evangelical church today? Boy, um, you know, I, I don't know. Um, there, there's, I guess my greatest concern is that it tends to be this law-based movement that masquerades as a gospel-based movement. And here's what I mean by that. 
reconciliation is something that Christ has done. Amen. Look at Ephesians chapter two in the first half. It's that vertical reconciliation between us as lost sinners and the righteous God. The second half is that horizontal reconciliation that Christ achieves through the cross between us sinners and one another. So we have been reconciled in Christ. That's not something we need to make happen. That's something we need to walk in that has already happened. See, that's a gospel-based understanding of reconciliation. A law-based understanding of racial reconciliation says that our separation between one another is um, economic. And the evidence of that is in economic disparities or, you know, in, in disparities in the justice system or whatever. And what we need to do in order to be reconciled to each other is to get rid of these disparities. Well, that's not reconciliation. And the other thing is that that is a law-based, you know, answer to a gospel-based question. Yeah. I mean, it's who we are in, in Christ. We're, we're united to Christ and we're to be united to one another because yeah. of Christ. So how can there be? And, and the other, the other, the other yeah. problem with that, of course, is yeah. that it brings in the assumption of a person being wronged. For example, you know, I'm a married man. You know, I, I, I've been married for 32 years. Sometimes my wife and I have to reconcile, but my wife and I don't have to reconcile because women did something to men or because men did something to women. When my wife and I have to reconcile, it's because I have done something to her, right? It's almost never because she's done something to me, you know, Um, but that's reconciliation. So what's happening now is we have people talking about reconciliation And the assumption is that white people, by virtue of their whiteness, have done something wrong to other ethnicities. And therefore, we need to reconcile on that level because of the wrong that's been done. And uh, that dog just won't hunt. You know, (laughs) when you when you do that, you've made some some categorical assumptions that run counter to the truth that we know in Scripture. We don't divide one another up like that. We don't engage in that kind of, you know, racial essentialism, if you will. Um, and so that, that that's hugely problematic on a number of levels. Yeah, well, I, I saw one prominent American Christian leader, not going to name their names, uh, but they, they. Yeah, you leave that to me in my book. I name uh, uh, Yeah, yeah. You, well, you'll know who you'll know who you'll know who I'm talking about here yeah. in a second when they when they post on Twitter about you know, how basically we need to focus more on our sociological differences, you know, in the body of Christ. They're not biblical differences or anything like that. They're not theological differences. He was emphasizing, you know, the sociology aspect of it. And I just, you lost me at that. Um, yeah. It's like, wow, what do you, what do you, well, I don't know what you mean there. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. He's saying, you know, we need to focus on our sociological differences. And Paul is saying that in Christ, There is no Jew. There is no Greek. There is no slave. There is no free. There is no male. There is no female. Right. Paul's saying that. And then we turn around and say, we need to focus on our sociological differences. You know, one of these things is not like the other. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. What makes the cult of anti-racism so dangerous? Yeah. Like any cult, it's dangerous in that it borrows from the truth. Right. It, it, it gets close enough to the truth to lure people in. And so even in the word, right, anti-racism, 
I'm I'm anti-racism. I don't want racism. But anti-racism doesn't mean I don't want racism. Anti-racism means that I view racism from a structural and systemic perspective. And instead of me looking in my own heart to try to find racism that I need to repent of, I look into the culture and to the structures of the culture and I dismantle those structures Hmm. because those structures are racist. And so the opposite, Ibram, Ibram X. Kendi, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, he says the, the, the opposite of racism, and by the way, um, uh, D'Angelo says this as well, the opposite of racism is not not racist. The opposite of racism is anti-racist. And again, they pour all of that meaning into the term, meaning which comes from critical race theory, you know, critical theory writ large, um, and, and you use a word that sounds like it indicates one thing, but it actually indicates another. That's what cults always do. Mm, yeah. And I mean, I, I think what you're describing is exactly the, the cultural climate in, in America today. It's like, oh, look over here. You know, I'm saying one thing, but really over here, this is what I mean. It's like then people get confused. And then when you call them on it, uh, they're mm-hmm. like, oh, no, that's not really what I meant. Oh, it's like, yeah. OK, yeah. OK, we're not stupid. You know, we we yeah. see what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I call that the Inyega Montoya effect, right? You keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. Uh, how is the sufficiency of scripture under assault from the CRT movement in the church? You know, there are people who are actually saying that there are things that we can and or need to learn from CRT about race. Now, If there are things in CRT that we need to learn as Christians so that we can have a right understanding in this area, then we're saying that the scriptures lack whatever this thing is or these things are that we need to go there and learn. That is hugely problematic. Mm. The Bible is sufficient in this area. Mm. Yeah. Not to mention it makes the other person feel like, oh, well, you know, I can't just read my Bible. And uh, the Bible isn't enough for me to learn about who I am and what I'm to do. It's, oh, I have to have this other thing outside of the Bible to to learn. And that that just that that smacks of pride and error. Imagine us doing that with other ideologies. Imagine us talking about um, atheism like that or Hinduism like that or, you know, whatever, you know, you wanted to talk to talk about like that, because the fact of the matter is um, whatever the ideology is, there is going to be some some aspects of truth in it, right? Otherwise, it would be just, you know, rejected by all. Um, and so, you know, so a, a, a Hindu has, you know, a, a problem with with murder, right? We don't then go well since they see murder as wrong, or an atheist who sees murder as wrong, since they see murder as wrong. Um, then that means they have some truth. And if they have some truth, then there's things that we can learn from them. That's just not how it works. Yeah, yeah, that's good. What's so concerning about the critical social justice movement stance on abortion? Interestingly enough, in the critical social justice movement, it's access to abortion that is the justice issue, not abortion itself. And so from a critical social justice perspective, the baby in the womb is not deserving of justice. Um, And again, that is one of the things that's inherently problematic 
And which is why I pointed that in a couple of different chapters, because I, I think that's one of the key weaknesses uh, of this movement. Yeah, I mean, you know, as Christians, as we as we both know, are for, um, you know, for for life from the womb to the tomb and everywhere in between. And, you know, yeah. I think one of the things that uh, I'm becoming concerned about in, in, the, in this topic is that we're just trying to legislate the issue and not trying to end the issue. We're not speaking out. We're not being truly consistent and trying to end it. And I think, um, you know, that's that's concerning as well. Um, yeah. So what do you what do you think? Yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. But again, that goes back to what I was talking about earlier. When you accept these definitions, then you move away from the heart of man and you move toward the legislative arena. Um, not that the le- legislative arena is unimportant, um, but, you know, you we 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 can't we can't mix those things up. Yeah. That's good. That's good. What's so concerning about evangelical Christians support of Black Lives Matter? Oh, well, a number of things, not the least of which is the nature of this organization, this organization, which is this, you know, radical feminist, openly Marxist, anti-Christian, anti-nuclear family organization with pagan roots. Um, I mean, other than that, I guess it's okay. <laughs> Your sarcasm is is telling, <laughs> but very biting, sir. Very biting here. You get a plus on that one. All yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's that's such an important point. I mean, you look at George Floyd, and you look at all these things. I mean, even back to when Obama was president, and I'm just like sitting out here, like, wait, what's what's happening? What's happening in our in our country? You know? Yeah. And, and the interesting and, thing about Black Lives Matter is. The, the, there's two main events that led to the establishment of BLM, and they talk about them. And one is the Trayvon Martin case, and the other is the Michael Brown case. And they 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 point to this um, as evidence of this, you know, war on on black men and this, you know, state sponsored killing of black men, as they like to say. Well, in one case, Trayvon Martin was killed by a person who was not a police officer. He didn't work for the state. Um, By the way, his mother was Afro-Peruvian, right? Um, And in the other case, we know that Michael Brown attacked a police officer and went for his gun, right? So they're taking these two cases, and that's that's the premise upon which they built their argument, that we have a problem of state-sponsored murder of black men. That's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so ridiculous. And, you know, I live in, I live in, um, I don't know if you know this, but I live in, probably not, but I live in Southern Oregon. And I was just up in Portland the other day and it's, it's just a disaster. It's a disaster, brother. I mean, it's not even, it's not even safe to go on the streets. We, my wife and I were going to Powell's Books, which is a very well-known bookstore there. It's not even safe to walk on the streets there. Not even safe to be in Portland. We're like, when we drive through, we're just going to drive through Portland. We're not going to stop. It's uh, it's not safe. It's it's not so sad because yeah, Black Lives Matter and, and Portland. Everything. Portland's beautiful, man. I've been to Portland a number of times, and I just, I mean, I, I've I've loved it every time I've been up there. I actually, I was actually up there one time, and it wasn't raining. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you come, if you come down here to Southern <laughs> Oregon, it's pretty nice. It's pretty sunny. It's it's beautiful. You know, lots of green, green yeah. trees and everything. Yeah, real real great. But uh, yeah, they they come even down as far as uh, about an hour. I think it's an hour or two down to Salem and stuff. And they're just all over every all over the state here. It's mm. bad. 
It's very sad. What is the most powerful weapon Christians have in our arsenal against CRT and intersectionality? Yeah, you didn't even have to finish that. This was the most powerful weapon Christians have, the gospel. That's the most powerful weapon Christians have, period. Whatever else comes after that, um, the gospel and the right understanding and application of the gospel and right proclamation of the gospel is the most powerful weapon that we have. Mm, amen, brother. Amen. You say on page 231, love your brothers and sisters enough to contend with them and for them. Can you lo- elaborate on what that means, uh, sp- uh, you know, specifically and practically, please? Yeah. You know, in that section, I'm talking about uh, you know, Paul's admonition in 2 Corinthians 10, right, that that we, you know, that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and that we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And also his admonition in, in Titus one uh, verse nine, uh, the elder's responsibility is to hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. And so, you know, love for the brethren doesn't say I'm going to leave you in your error. Love for the brethren says, if I find you in error, um, I love you enough to contend with you and to contend for you because my desire is for you to walk in truth. Yeah, that's really good. Well, brother, I always ask this question of all, all everyone who comes on here. Where can people go to find out more about your work online, on social media or otherwise? Yeah, they can go to votibacham.org. Um, You can find me on social media. It's Votib, um or Votibacham. Uh, I think on Facebook is Votibacham. Instagram is Votib. I think on Twitter, um, and I'm never on Twitter. Uh, Can't blame me, brother. It's, it's voting me. Yeah. I say I know myself too well to get yes. involved with Twitter. Um, yes. People ask me all the time. Yeah, I notice it. You you know, you rarely have anything on Twitter. And if it is, it was linked from somewhere else. I know myself too well to get involved and engaged on Twitter. I'm too sarcastic. And people, <laughs> don't, people don't know me and don't understand me. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that could just lead to, you know, some, some, some really bad stuff. Um, but, you know, if you want to go there and wait for things to be linked from the other places, I guess you can. Um, and then votibacham.org, I think I've said, and also African Christian University, acu-zambia.com. Wonderful, brother. Thank you, Sharon, for sharing that with us. As we just wrap up this interview, can you uh, give us a few takeaways, brother? Yeah. Number one, what we're dealing with is real and what we're dealing with is urgent, but what we're dealing with is not final. And I think we need to have that kind of view because we ha- we can have the view that says, and some people have said, you know, what we're dealing with is not real, right? This, this is a made up crisis. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, other people who say, yeah, it's real, but it's not urgent. It's not that big a deal. Um, yes, it is. Yes, it is. This is real and this is a big deal. But then finally, this is not final, right? Um, Christ will preserve his bride. Um, we, we win in the end. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, we've been talking today with my new friend, Vody Bakum, about his book, Fault Lines, the Social Justice Movement and Evangelicals. Looming Catastrophe, Vody. I love this book. And the reason I love it is because it's not only well-researched, but it's thoroughly grounded in a biblical worldview. You don't try to bash anybody or smash them over the head. You you deal with arguments that people have. It comes from their hearts, and they're trying to articulate what they think and what they believe. And I think you do a really helpful job in the book dealing with those arguments and showing how they're not compatible with a biblical worldview. So I really well, thank you very much for that, man. I, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, so we'll definitely be praying for you. Our listeners appreciate you. And 
Uh, we'll be praying for you as you travel back to Africa and as you minister, brother. So thank you so much for your time and your ministry. Wow, you're most welcome, friend. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.